Harlots of History contains explicit language, overt sexual themes, and discussion of sensitive subjects. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Harlots of History, a show by women for everyone, except children and pets, including our own. This show is created by our love of the shadier, inventive, and bold women, men, and non-binary humans that you cannot find in the history books. We will be exploring and educating ourselves, and hopefully our listeners, on infamous mistresses, lovers, sex workers, courtesans, madams, vamps, sirens, and of course, harlots. We will delve into their pasts, sordid or honorable, discussing the era that they happen to live in and the problems of the times. Be ready for some controversial figures. You may be surprised at how many harlots in history you end up loving or at least begrudgingly respect. So sit back, grab a fizzy drink, some salty snacks, and have some fun listening to Harlots of History, taking back the word harlot one episode at a time. All right, welcome to Harlots of History. I'm Emily, and I am a stay-at-home bartender and stay-at-home dog mom. And I'm Kara Mia, and I am a mom. I don't feel like identifying as a stay-at-home mom today. I'm starting to I'm starting to resent it. I am a running around mom. You're a work <laughs> from home mom. Thank you. <laughs> now we have the podcast and that's, that's our work. I feel like I've been working from home. That's right. You you have. I have too. I've been holed up in my closet all week long editing and researching and stuff. And I did research my episodes with a baby hanging off my boob. That's very impressive. <laughs> Thank I, you. Researched, I just researched mine with a cat snoring. My cat is actually snoring. I have one cat snoring on my feet and one cat is snoring. Oh, yeah. The cat that's snoring right now is the one that's above me. <laughs> I can't tell. I think it's coming from both of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cute. So what are you drinking today? Oh, I'm just drinking some rosé with a little bit of pamplemousse lacroix. Fancy. Oh, sure. <laughs> I'm drinking. Okay, so I made this white wine spritzer in to go with our episode today. Ooh. Actually, because so our episode, um, we're talking about Virginia Hill, who is she was the mob, the queen of the mob, as they call her. But my white wine spritzer, I accidentally, not accidentally, I just bought this box of wine like a couple of months or like a month ago or whatever. It's the bootlegger white, and it's lucky. Oh Luciano. yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I have to make a spritzer. So I'm drinking like, I made a white wine spritzer with a mango truly. And that sounds so good. It is really good. I've got my, my matcha, my, oh, my cat's moving. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's like a little bit of mango truly, a little bit of mango soda water and some wine and it's good. Nice. Yeah. I've had way too much coffee today. So no more for me. Yeah, you gotta um, you gotta drink your wine. Help <laughs> me calm down. Yeah. Uh. All right. So I have a quote that has nothing Ooh. to do with this episode, but I feel like it has to do with the show because we just I this episode I think is number five, but we just finally finalized our cover art. You so mean Emily did all herself. Take the I credit. Did. I did. Yes, we did. I I just found this when I was looking at like definitions of harlot. So this is a quote from The Roots of Desire, The Myth, Meaning, and Sexual Power of Red Hair by Marion Roach. And I think it sounds really interesting. So I just think this quote works really well for us. When choosing red, we are not choosing to be strumpets, harlots, hookers, liars, and witches, but rather to wear the totemic color, the shade of Mars, as well as that of heartbreak, to see how we look. 
Uh, I relate to that so, like, I, I my hair is always red. I know. My favorite color is red. I own way too many red shoes. Like, And I always have red cheeks. <laughs> right? Emily has the cutest rosy cheeks, everyone. No, I hate them. They're I love them. Cute. I love them. Okay, well, I'm glad you do. You can have them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I just thought that that, because our cover uh, has a girl with red hair, and you have red hair. I have had red hair at some point. I used to dye my hair with henna in high school. I had like... No! Yeah, I had really bright red hair. Like, I'll show you pictures of my high that's, school graduation. That's very- that's very crunchy of you. That's very crunchy, yeah. It's very granola of me. <laughs> yeah, but my hair was like orange red. Like purple orange red. If you can no, it was like purple red. Mm-hmm. Also orange. If you can you get the, the yeah. tone. Yeah. For a long time. And now it's blonde. Okay. So today we are going to be talking about Virginia Hill, who is widely known as Bugsy Siegel's mistress. And I'm so glad you're talking about her because her name has like floated around in like the back of my consciousness, it feels like for a while. Yeah. Oh, hi, Salem. He's scratching my arm. Oh my God, get off my arm. (laughs) You can't get up. I put him up on top of the the shelf, but there's no blankets there or anything. So he's having a hard time. Get him to meow for the microphone. Meow. Meow, meow, meow. Meow. (laughs) He won't do it. All right. We're back. Yeah, so you probably know more about this than me, but uh, you probably know a lot more about the 20s, considering that all your kids have names for the 20s. They do, and I'm (laughs) slightly obsessed with the culture back then, or should I say the lack of culture back then? It goes both ways. (laughs) (laughs) That works. Okay, so are you ready? I'm so excited. (laughs) Okay, died. Virginia Hill, 49. Redheaded, free-spending playmate of the underworld, who first gained notoriety in 1947 when boyfriend Bugsy Siegel, Murder, Inc.'s West Coast representative, was executed gangland style in her Beverly Hills living room, and who later acted out a cameo role before the late Senator Estes Kefauver Senate a Senate Crime Committee, playing dumb about the business dealings of her many racketeer friends, but boggling senators with her full-grown curves and succinct explanation of just why men would lavish money on a hospitable girl from Bessemer, Alabama, apparently by her own hand, barbiturates, near Salzburg, Austria, where she fled with her ski instructor husband, Hans Hauser, in 1951 to escape tax evasion charges. <laughs> I mean, I hope if I die when I'm 49, that my obituary reads something like that. I know that was, so that was an excerpt from time magazine obituaries that was reported on April 1st. It sounded very like Roxy Hardish. I know. And I, goddamn asshole cat. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So I went kind of down a rabbit hole from time magazine obituaries because they all sound like that. The exposition is so good. So I actually have three more obituaries from Time Magazine that we're going to talk about. And two of them have nothing to do with this episode at all. I'm going to save them for the end. So if you want to hear them, you have to listen to the end of this podcast. But they were just from the same day. And I just think that they're so interesting. And they don't read like obituaries do anymore. So I I love reading headstones. So I know. It's so interesting. Okay. Before we get into Virginia Hill, I just want to give a little background about syndicated crime, prohibition, and sex work during the 20s. I'm not going to go too deep into sex work because I know we want to do an episode about it at some point, but I just Mm -hmm. want to set the scene a little bit. And it's kind of, so also before I begin, 
there's, and I think this is the case with most things that I research, a lot of differing accounts as far as details go, like the big picture is mostly mm-hmm. the same. So I'm going off, mo- I've heard in different things of what was most. Like, and like, how weird is that? Like when you're researching, like one person's like her hair was brown and the other one was like, it was the most beautiful blonde. I, like, it is like really that, weird. Right? right? Yeah, yeah. Like this one, I, yeah, her hair was red, but she doesn't. Like her hair always looks really dark brown in the pictures, but of course they're all black and white. So who actually knows? Uh, I also did listen to the female criminals podcast episode on her. So that gave me some good insight as well. And some salacious details. Some, yeah, they get really detailed. I, yeah. So that's why I really like it. So, all right. Before we get into that, though, I need to tell you what your mob your mob name is. <laughs> oh my gosh, please. So I went to the mobmuseum.org and they ask you a couple of questions. You have I did yours twice and I did mine twice, so you can pick your favorite one. Oh my um, gosh, I'm so excited. Yeah. So you are either Caramia Sweet Lips Delgado <laughs> or Caramia the Godmother Delgado. I like and you're a mob lips. boss. You like lips. Lips. And now, you know what though? I feel like Sweet Lips was early 20s Karamia. Like the godmother is me now. I I actually felt the same thing. Sweet Lips was you like 21, 22. You're the godmother now. Like I'm just like really hardcore. (laughs) I know you are. (laughs) But you're the mob boss. And I'm either Emily Smiley Ballantyne, which I don't Or Emily Moneybags Ballantyne. (laughs) Oh, Moneybags is so much better. And I'm a speakeasy owner. That's awesome. I know. And Matt was Mad Dog. Of course. <laughs> I know. They're all pretty accurate. Okay, so let's dive into the 1920s. The 18th Amendment passed in 1919, which came into effect in January of 1920, marked the beginning of the 13-year-long prohibition, which was intended to reform a sinful society, but ended up being an astronomical failure in regards to its original goal. What it succeeded in doing, however, was creating speakeasies, flappers, and syndicated crime, and bringing them all to the forefront of history. With the gold sequin dresses and permed bobs came gangsters and black, black fedoras. With secret knocks at a speakeasy door came Tommy guns, back alleys, and sleeping with the fishes. And with the pop of that bottle of champagne came the formation of the National Crime Syndicate. Syndicated crime, for those who don't know, is just collaboration between different criminal organizations who had previously been separated by turf lines and family ties. Before Prohibition went into effect, crime obviously existed, but the mobs were controlled by corrupt politicians who paid them to intimidate their candidates in return for ignoring the growing gambling and prostitution rings that were run by the crime families. Okay. Yeah, I actually, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that, but it makes sense. When alcohol became illegal, however, suddenly these crime families realized that they had a colossal new market for illegal activities, and they didn't need to answer to these politicians. <laughs> I'm, like, laughing because, like, it's just like nowadays, like, I just feel like that is just such a huge, colossal oversight. Like, how do they not expect this to happen? I know. Yeah. Like, people have been drinking since, like, before Jesus. Like, <laughs> I know. I just don't understand. <laughs> I know. I know. They were like, oh, no, it's going to reform them. Oh, wait, hold on. It's going right, to be huge. Just, I'm also really curious because, like, I'm super interested in prohibition, right? Like, I've done a lot of, like, little bits and bobs of research around it. And like, of course we had to study it in school and college, but like, I'm just super curious because I just had the question now, how did the reformers, like, you know, the, whatever they were, the evangelical reformers or the 
Protestant reformers. How did they align the idea that even in the Bible, wine was drunk? Like you can read it in the Bible that people drink wine. Jesus turned water into wine. How did they align that with like, no, we're not going to drink alcohol? Like if were the priests just omitting it from church? And like, I'm not expecting you to know the answer, but right? Yeah, know the answer. But Isn't that kind of like, how would they, right? I know. Yeah. Like how maybe they just did fruit juice instead. I don't know. Or like non-alcoholic wine does not exist. Yeah, that does. Never yeah. tried it ever. I think it's just ever. <laughs> I know. At my old at my um, old club, they carried a non-alcoholic beer, and like people ordered it. People really like non-alcoholic beer. I've I've had non-alcoholic non-alcoholic beer at every <laughs> restaurant I've worked at. I think except for maybe the whiskey bar because you know it was a whiskey bar. Yeah, my dad used to really like non-alcoholic beer. I don't know why he just he like he it wasn't like he doesn't drink. Maybe it's like a habit. Maybe it's like a habit after you formed for many years. You know, I guess like people drink decaf coffee. I guess, but it also has uh, it does have alcohol in it, so you can still get drunk. Like it's like an alcoholic should not drink it because there's like a little bit, but like if you drank six of them, you could still get tipsy. I did not know that. How I didn't know that either. Yeah, I learned that. That's like you're not supposed to drink them. I think plus. Like, I know, too, like, with Matt, he doesn't like to drink things that, like, remind him of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't like, like kombucha. Macho. Yeah. Well, no, he likes kombucha, but it doesn't, like, that doesn't really taste like alcohol unless you get, like, a really strong oh. alcoholic one. Yeah, I guess so. But, but yeah. Kombucha is really good for the gut. All right. When alcohol became illegal, however, suddenly these crime families realized that they had a colossal new market for illegal activities. And they didn't need to answer to these politicians. They could answer to themselves. They had connections that brought them easy access to smuggled booze from Canada across the Great Lakes. And with their Tommy guns, fedoras, and quick staycated speech that we know and begrudgingly love, they were able to provide security for their speakeasies, along with intimidation to competitors and the the capital to pay off the police to turn a blind eye. Needing a way to conceal their bootlegging from the IRS, they turned to lawyers and accountants to help them set up legitimate business fronts and launder money through them. Excuse me. Which is why you always hear about gangsters from back then getting like gunned down in flower shops and like chocolate shops, like little tiny weird yeah. places you wouldn't expect. Right? Butchers. Be. I've always thought like the butcher shop is like the perfect. I know it would be, but I think the flower shop is like, you wouldn't expect a gangster to own a flower shop. That's why they're right. so perfect. Yeah, um, you're right. Yeah. So... Because they were dealing with bootlegging, not just across state lines, but internationally as well, the mob bosses were forced to cross turfs and make deals between families, and the syndicated crime was born. Once prohibition went into effect, the money started flooding in. Al Capone alone made up to $1 million a year, which is $1.4 billion What? 2018. I know. That's crazy. Of course, yeah, they spent half a million dollars a month just to keep the cops off their payroll, or on their payroll. That's like, so $500,000 back then, that would be, I think what, it's like, like half a billion now. Cause like if you no, made a billion, I think, it, I think it's like 5 million. Cause, but cause if you said Al Capone made 1 million a year, that oh, translates to 1.4 billion. Oh, so yeah. if he was paying like a half a million, it'd be half a billion. So it'd be like oh, 500,000. Yeah. <laughs> I guess math is in my strong suit. Oh no, uh, I was just, cause I was just no, like, no, oh, I know, you're God, right. so much money. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. I didn't, I was doing math right. Yes. That's a lot. So Al Capone or Scarface, which I didn't know he was called Scarface. Is that movie Scarface? That's not about him, though. That's about someone else. Not direct, no, it's about someone else. Yeah. Yeah. I forget so, the name of that guy, but no, it's about it's about someone else. And he was actually living until quite recently or he's still oh, really? alive. Yeah. He was a drug runner. I thought he died in the movie. Didn't he? Oh, oh, Tiger King. That's why I know him, because he was in Tiger King. He Who? owns. 
that the guy who Star- Scarface was based on is in what? Tiger King. He is? Owns, yes, he's one of the guys who owns a private zoo. Um, He's like the guy with the dark hair. And he kind of looks a little menacing. He's not the guy on the elephant. He's not the Tiger King. He's the guy that, and he's not Carol Baskin. He's the guy that looks a little menacing. He's not Carol Baskin. Right? (laughs) Carol Baskin. We're not going to start on her. But anyways, he was in Tiger King, the guy whose Scarface was based off of. Also, Carol Baskin definitely murdered her husband, right? Like, she definitely did it. I'm just going to sip loudly. (laughs) (laughs) She got him to the tiger. It's the perfect crime. I mean, they used to feed people to pigs. I was right? going to say, like, yeah, that's like, I never trust a pig farmer. Right. So we digress. We digress. <laughs> okay, we do. Okay. So Al Capone headed the Chicago outfit, or as was known, the outfit, Chicago Mafia, Chicago Mob, Southside Gang, the organization. At the turn of the 20th century, the Chicago's gangs were divided between the South Side, North Side, and the Black Hand of Little Italy. Big Jim Colosimo, an Italian immigrant, started the Chicago outfit, and rec- uh, recruited Al Capone and Johnny Torrio from New York to help him run the mob. In 1919, Al Capone moved from New York to Chicago, and he worked as a bouncer where he contracted syphilis, which would eventually be what killed him. Mm-hmm. So even though this is has, again, a tangent, there was actually treatment at this point. So Selvarthin uh, oh. or Arsphenamine. It's a co- or compound 606. It was called all three of those things. It was available at this time, and it was an organo-arsenic or carbon and arsenic compound. So as we've talked about in previous... Arsenic and arsenic. Is, yeah. Yep. I feel like mm-hmm. syphilis comes up in every one of our episodes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's important. Uh, so first, so it's, this was the first modern antimicrobial agent, which is discovered in the 1910s. So obviously, uh, it wasn't like as good as penicillin, but... They were they were combining carbon with arsenic instead of just giving people arsenic. So I think it actually did help. But it was a it was a, it was a start, uh, more a than start. a start. They were yeah. getting there, yeah. But he didn't he didn't take it. So no. yeah, not important. But uh, so Johnny Torrio, uh, who also moved from New York with Capone to join the Chicago outfit, took over the mob by gunning down Colosimo uh, in a dark alley when he refused to get involved in bootlegging. So the original head of the outfit was like. I don't want to get involved in bootlegging. So the guy he recruited was like, well, that's stupid. You're dead. I'm the boss now. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, Tor- Torio. And I don't know if it's like Torio or Torio. But so Torio and Capone became part owners. And they started seeing a cash influx immediately from racketeering and bootlegging, which is a really good incentive because it allowed them to lead the outfit to the no- notoriety it still has today. Torio, never the pacifist, incited a gang war when he arranged for the murder of Dino Banyan the head of the Northside gang at his flower shop, sparking a need for revenge by the new leaders of the gang. In 1925, Capone was ambushed, and 12 days later, Torrio was shot while grocery shopping with his wife, which, like, grocery shopping ah. is stressful enough without having to, like, think about getting a mob hit. Right, and just think of, like, grocery shopping back then. I guess, though, uh, no, it was, I, I, I'm just like, never mind. It wasn't the 50s where everything was, like, gelatin and mini sausages. Sounds I know. really good, though. I want mini sausages (laughs) and gelatin. Um, So he actually survived this, even though he'd been shot multiple times. And he recovered, but he was like, "Eh, I'm out. So he, and I guess he, I don't don't know what happened to him after that, but he turned the business over to Capone and that Capone was pretty young at that point. Like, I think he was in his 20s. And, you know, we all know Capone. He went on to cause the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And then he was arrested on October 17th, 1931. For tax evasion. And he was kind of like in jail 
since then. But I think he might have still had like a hand from jail. Oh, are you well. kidding me? But yes. He, he did, right? Because I was like, yeah, I heard, like, I was like, oh, he's he's done. And then I was also hearing stuff like, oh, yeah, in the 40s. And also, doing like, it, so. also, like, I feel like if you had money back then and you had like clout or whatever, you were like able to provide, buy the things that you needed to for jail. So I doubt that Al Capone's jail experience was like everyone else's. Yeah, especially if you, um, like, if you had, a pay, you were paying the police like half a billion dollars. Right. <laughs> They've been like, oh, here you go. So two years later, prohibition was repealed and needing a new way to make their money, organized crime shifted its attention from bootlegging to drugs, gambling, and prostitution. Do you know what kind of drugs? Heroin was big. I know. Heroin. Okay, because I, I had no idea. Heroin was big. I know that one. I think there was like a lot of narcotics. Cocaine and then was starting? I cocaine was like I mean, yeah but I, I think cocaine was more in like the 50s and 60s but i know heroin was like a huge thing okay i know what well, like because like opium was like really big back then and isn't heroin and opium they're both opiates right yeah like, heroin is like derived from opium i believe um and then like sleeping pills i think were big mm-hmm. so i don't i mean i think those were legal though so i think heroin was like the big business and we will we'll get into that a little bit okay so i went into like sex work just a little bit and virginia hill like again accounts differ i think she might have been doing i've heard some things where she did some sex work and then also i've heard that she like didn't because in the uh the podcast i listened to today the female criminals they were saying that she really hated the idea of men paying her for money but i've heard other things too so again accounts differ so i just went into this a little bit prostitution has been incorporated into chicago it was incorporated in 1837 and as we talk about in a lot of episodes it was considered a necessary evil and it operated out of salons, apartments, and rooming houses in the central business district. When the business district expanded, sex workers were pushed further south, which spawned the creation of the Levy, or Levy, a red light district that was infamously home to sex workers of all caliber. Here you could find anything from dingy, moldy, pay-by-the-minute boarding houses, where you could be sure to find a quick lay with a side of syphilis, to <laughs> lavish and highly exclusive private resorts, where you could find goose-down pillows in your every desire. Some of the resorts, yeah. Oh, didn't didn't prostitution, uh, sex working in Chicago really stem from the World's Fair in like yeah. the eighteen hundred? Okay. Well, the, I know like the World's Fair was big, like when Virginia well, came. So yeah, okay. eighteen thirty-seven. That sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. And I just I briefly wanted to do it because I know we'll get into it at some point, mm-hmm. do like an episode about it because we're interested in that. Uh, so some of the resorts at this time were even specifically for male sex workers. In 1911, the social evil in Chicago, a 400-page government report released by the Chicago Vice Commission, championed reform from sin via education and religion. The result of this report was the shutdown of the Everly Club, which was an extremely exclusive and lavish resort, whose owners, two middle-aged sisters, were able to retire as millionaires. I when you like said that, I, I actually read about the Everly sisters. They're so cool. They're I, yeah. so cool. Yeah, oh, we and should also, do them. Yeah, we should. Because, yeah, they were, they were like really adept at what they did. But also when I heard the Everly Club, I was just, I, when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, I want to go there. That sounds very exclusive. That does sound very exclusive. All right. I'm adding some more mango truly to my drink. The rest of the Levy district was shut down in 1912. So like a lot of our tour. That's early. I know. And so that's when it kind of like, you know, it wasn't really legalized anymore. So that's when I think, you know, the mafia and mobs started getting into it because it was another illegal activity for them to do. 
So sex workers began moving to cabarets, nightclubs, and the south side of Chicago among the growing black community because here they could operate outside of the law, undisturbed by the police. So I think, like, at that point, the police were either not going there or they just, like, there was there was more... Uh, turning a blind out. eye. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. In the 1920s, prostitution rings relocated to the suburbs of Cicero, Burnham, Stickney, and Chicago Heights because the law enforcement there could be more easily controlled, and I was maybe thinking they were cheaper to bribe. And there's... Okay, so yeah, there's a lot there. I'm not going to go too far into it. So, all right, Virginia Hill. Um, so Virginia Hill was born Oni Virginia Hill on August 26, 1916 in Lipscomb, Alabama. And actually, she moved to, family moved to Bessemer, Alabama. And I was like telling Matt about this. And he's like, oh, I lived in Bessemer, Alabama, which is interesting. So crazy. <laughs> yeah. So she was the seventh of 10 children born to Mac and Margaret Hill. So I lived on a farm. Her father was an abusive alcoholic horse trader. And one night when she was seven years old, he was abusing her mother and she threatened him with a hot, greasy skillet. She may or may not have actually hit him either way, but yeah, girl. Uh, yeah, I know. And I think, um, so in the female criminals podcast, they're talking about, this is kind of a moment where she was really scared to do it. And then he backed down. And from that point, he didn't hit her. He only hit her mother, but she was more safe. So she kind of saw this as like, she could stand up for herself. And then a lot of her, Thoughts about men came from her father's abuse. You know, she didn't want to get close to anyone and that sort of stuff. And that's, yep. I think, pretty common with an abuse cycle. Yep. And so her parents were separated soon after her and she, her family moved to Marietta, Georgia with her mother and some of her siblings or all of her siblings. So she dropped out of grammar school when she was young and she realized that she was able to use her sexuality to get her places. Catch a scratch man. And how, like, she's, like, still, like, like what, like, 10, 11? Uh, yeah, she's young. I also read that she, like, I read in some accounts that she started having sex at, like, age 12 or 13. Yeah, so pretty young. So she married a guy when she was 15, and she he was 16. His name was George Randall. And so in 1933, she was 17, and they moved to Chicago to enter showbiz. And she divorced Randall soon after, and she started working as a waitress during the World Fair at the San Carlo Italian exhibit. My cat is just has his claws on my foot, and if I move, he, like, puts them deeper, so my foot's trapped. <laughs> so the San Carlo Italian exhibit, it was run by the mob. And I read that she subsidized the waitress job with sex work, which was also largely controlled by the mob. Again, different accounts. Um, I've also seen this called coochie dancing, which I thought was funny. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Um, I know. She met Joseph Epstein, who was a financial advisor for the mob. The rumor is that they became lovers and then friends, but it's also, I think he was secretly gay. So she was kind of his, like, covered, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Epstein was her gateway drug into the Chicago outfit, and she became the bag girl. So she was a courier who passed messages between the mobsters and carried their stolen goods across state lines. Epstein gave her initial tests of laundering money for the outfit by betting at the Chicago horse tracks, which was a way for him to legitimize his business and report an income to the IRS while also making a large amount of under-the-table cash. And in the Female Criminals podcast, they say that her cut was 10%, which was about $2,000, which was $40,000 today. What? Yes, I know. It's a I'll lot. I'll bet horses. I'll bet on horses. Yeah. <laughs> so she would do that. She would get a lot of money. I'll yeah. bet on pigs. I know. I love the I love the little pig races. I went to a horse track one time and they were doing wiener dog races. They were That's so cute. The cutest thing. Oh my gosh. I would I know, have died. Really cute. So 
Yeah, so she was making a ton of money, and she really liked fancy things, so she was able to buy stuff, and she was able to use her feminine wiles to get men to play sucker bets on fixed boxing matches, and boxing matches were, like, the easiest things to fix, because, like, you just had to buy off one person and be like, okay, you have to go down. They were underground, too. Yeah, yeah. I've watched enough Peaky Blinders. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, those sucker bets were just pure profit Mm -hmm. for the bookies. So Epstein adorned her with fancy dresses, and she was able to smuggle expensive furs and jewelry across state lines without anyone batting an eye. She was soon flush with cash, said the John Ralphio voice. (laughs) Um, And she was able to buy her family a $10,000 house in Georgia in cash. In Bugsy's Baby, The Secret Life of Mob Queen of Virginia, uh, Mob Queen Virginia Hill, Andy Edmonds states, It was common knowledge in both the mafia and law enforcement that Hill had in her possession the tools to destroy the East Coast mob and send the Chicago outfit tumbling like a house of cards. End quote. Many of the mafia men liked her, not just for her feminine wiles, but because she could keep her mouth shut. She helped direct heroin traffic from Mexico and spied for Luciano, delivering money and sexual favors and reported back to him. And again, in this, uh, the podcast episode I listened to, they just were so detailed. And the New York and Chicago mobs were kind of rival and because they were from different parts of Italy. So they didn't like Luciano and Capone didn't like each other. So the Capone, I think they, they sent her to like New York to kind of keep an eye on that part. And they were trying to, yeah, they were trying to like get in. East Chicago and New York was trying to make, like, they're trying to be friends, <laughs> be allies. There we go. So they sent her to New Yeah, so they, they sent her to New York to kind of keep an eye on them. So she soon became the queen of the mob and the only woman ever identified as a mafia associate, thanks to her criminal acumen and her ability to use her sexuality to get what she wanted, which I applaud. And while I'm not applauding her as a person, I believe that patriarchal society has tried to make sexuality something bad, using it to lift up rape culture, where if a woman is in charge of her own sexuality, is automatically a yes to any man she ever meets. And men can use their strength. So, Mm -hmm. you know, women can use what they have. Yeah, Yeah, totally. There's, this is especially prevalent with sex workers, and let's just be clear that consent needs to be given every time, and saying yes to a man one time or to another man or to many men does not equal future consent, and saying yes to one sexual act is also not consent to other sexual acts that may come after that. And um, that's just a rant that I felt needed to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So she was seen with many different famous gangsters, such as Frank Costello, Frank Nitti, Tony Ocardo, and Joe Adonis. She became friends with Charles Fischetti. Al Capone's cousin and bodyguard. Jeff Burbank reports for the Mob Museum that on a dare, she gave head to Fischetti and several other outfit men at a Christmas party in front of a room full of guests, including How Fischetti. Is that a, a dare? I, I think it's like a man. But including Fischetti's wife? Yeah, she was there, like watching. So that's, Hopefully. I mean, that's a story that I heard. I don't, didn't see it anywhere else, but that's, I mean, it could it could have happened. So Fischetti sent her to New York to gain information on the Luciano crime family and particularly on Joe Adonis, who was a capo or captain. So he was like under the underboss, but he commanded a bunch of soldiers. She became his lover, although neither of them were faithful to each other. And they laundered money and pulled scams together until she met Bugsy Siegel in 1937. And Bugsy Siegel and Joe Adonis hated each other. So Bugsy Siegel like was like, okay, well. He he was like really big into the long con, so he was planning for like months. He was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take his, I'm gonna take this guy's girlfriend." Even though like Joe Adonis like had a wife, but they were just very famously a couple. So he like did this long con and then met them at a hotel or like at a restaurant one night. And then she the next night she slept with Bugsy, and so they had a short lived, short lived but hot and heavy affair. And then they went their separate ways. 
the end. That's not the end. <laughs> also, also, Bugsy Siegel and I would not have gotten along because I do not have patience for the long con. No. <laughs> oh, I don't know if you have the pictures, but there's pictures. I just okay. pulled it up. Okay. Yeah. He, and I, I feel terrible about saying this about like a murderer and like rapist, but he's like attractive if you don't know anything about him. He's the one in the hat, right? Yeah. I think I have it labeled. I don't know. Yes, you do. His mugshot. Yeah, his mugshot. His, his side profile is better than his full profile. Yeah, but he's like, I mean, he's definitely, he was definitely like handsome. And is that like gorgeous woman in the fur, Virginia Hill? Yeah, the one. She's breathtaking. Oh, isn't she gorgeous? It's like, like she's too pretty. Yeah. Is that the picture where she's like in her fur and she like looks like she's in a courtroom? Yeah. Oh, no, okay. no, 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 not where she was in a courtroom. Just like the single picture of her before she's in a courtroom. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's, yeah. Both of those. She's just so gorgeous. But no, the one in the courtroom, she's okay. Yeah. <laughs> she looks like, she looks like the mob got to her. <laughs> she does. But I think, yeah, she's, I think she's still gorgeous in that. But yeah, the first one is like her a little bit younger. Okay. So Bugsy was born Benjamin Siegel on February 28th, 1906 to a poor Jewish family who had emigrated to Brooklyn from the Austro-Hungarian Hungarian Empire. He started a protection racket as a kid where he put like forced pushcart owners to pay him a dollar so that he wouldn't burn their pushcarts down. <laughs> I know. Um, his criminal record began as a teenager and it went on to include so burpy today. <laughs> it went on to include robbery, rape, and murder. And that was like starting as a teenager. What? I know. I don't I don't that, know. That escalated real quick. I know. He was like telling pushcart push car owners to give him a dollar and then he was like murdering people in 1929 he married esther krakauer his childhood sweetheart they had two daughters and remained married until 1946 real quickly (laughs) did you see the thing i posted on my stories it was not michael scott what's his face the actor steve carell yeah that's him steve carell they they took a picture of him in the office set like recently oh and he yeah, has a yeah, cup, yeah he has a mug that says toby started covid19 that, oh i didn't see the mug i need that mug the mug yeah that's why i put it yeah it's like uh, anyway it's really funny okay so bugsy was one of the big celebrity gangsters at the time he had ties with the jewish mob the american mafia and the national crime syndicate in the 30s he was the head of murder inc which I actually didn't know was anything other than a record label. <laughs> no, it's a real thing. Yeah, I know. And it was initially called the Bugs and Meyer mob, but uh, it was headed by Bugsy and Meyer Lansky. But I think Murder Inc. is sounds much better. Dude, I am so obsessed with Meyer Lansky. Uh, yeah, he's he, the guy who rigged the like World Series, right? I think so. Yeah, this was a group of Italian and Jewish gangsters, and they were murdered for hire for mob bosses. So they were paid a regular pension, and then they also got a thousand to five thousand per hit. So just imagine that money today. That's like modern John Wick. Yeah, if two thousand was forty thousand, then that was like twenty to like a hundred thousand. I know, and that was like per hit, and they also got a pension, and their families were taken care of. What? And yeah, I know. So it was like a good, like you could, I mean, obviously like, there's a lot of money, but they, I think high they made risk, but high reward. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen the Irishman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like him. I think he was like, he was like, and he's always throw his guns in the river. The mob largely answered to the crime syndicate, which is headed by lucky Luciano. And then they answered to like a board, a board of directors. So Bugsy so left. <laughs> I know Bugsy left New York in the thirties. I think like after a Joe Adonis caught, him with or found out that he had slept with Virginia. He was like, get him out of here. So they sent him to Hollywood. 
and he moved with his family, and he was able to or continue his philandering womanizing. And so his relationship with Virginia had ended. And I think it, it might have just been a one-night stand. With Bugsy or Joe Adonis? He had, like, a like maybe a year-long relationship with Joe Adonis, but, like, neither of them were faithful. And it was, like, she was kind of just using him. And then Bugsy, she had, like, a one-night stand. That's it? Well, no, but at this point. That's it. Oh, at this point, I was going to say, I was like, they're so integral to each other. I feel like no. you don't hear one name without the other. Yeah. They okay. had like a five-year relationship after this. Yeah. But at this <laughs> okay. point, so he moves to Hollywood. She, so she's like, she gets out and she goes back to Georgia and she briefly marries a 19-year-old college football player named Osgood Griffin. How and old it was is an, she? Uh, she was, when was she born? I just Hold want on. her to be a cougar. 1916. When was this? 1939? So, like, 25-ish? Oh, so not that much older. 23? So young. Okay, never mind. I wanted her to be, like, 39, marrying a 19-year-old. No, she was 23. (laughs) So, they they got married, and then they got annulled, like, six months later. And then she married Miguelito Valdez, who was a Mexican nightclub dancer. And she married him so that his visa could be extended. She was able to afford a lavish life, and she loved pouring out champagne and dancing, don't we all? Mm-hmm. So in, in the midst of her extravagant New York party life, she the mob like invested money into the hurricane in New York, and she was like heading it. But she was kind of sick of her husband. So after they, were, they invested money into what? A nightclub. The hurricane. Oh, a nightclub was called Hurricane. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they paid a hurricane to hit. <laughs> I was just at first, I was like, what? Okay, what? yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So she told him that she was hiring him and she like tricked him into signing divorce papers and then ditched him and went to LA. Yeah. So she's like, here, sign this contract. I so kind of she- admire people with that much like freedom and abandon. I know, and he was just like, okay. And then, and then she was like, bye. <laughs> so she moved to Hollywood and in like 1939 and she was living large. She was running suites at the Beverly Hills hotel and throwing parties like that costs like eight thousand dollars which is a ton of money in general but just like imagine how much that is that's like a hundred thousand dollars okay even if it was eight thousand dollars today i'd be like what i know <laughs> um, so she ran into bugsy at a house party and the mansion mob- party mansion yeah. party let's yeah. just call it what it is <laughs> yeah and there's also again different counts but basically i think the mob told her to go keep an eye on bugsy is the like the common consensus, but she like she she liked him. She was kind of excited to go see him. So she became his head mistress, and he was constantly womanizing and dating other women, specifically actresses. And their relationship was passionate in all the worst ways. And I think intense passion always comes with the dark side. Yep. They established a drug trafficking ring out in Mexico called the Milk Run, which focused specifically on heroin. It was rumored that they married in Mexico, although it was never proven, and it's been disputed because he was still married to his wife until 1946. They threw lavish parties, and Bugsy set up an extortion scam in Hollywood where he staged strikes within unions and then demand money to get the studios to reopen. What? They, yeah, I know. That's really clever. I know. They fought constantly, and he was abusive, and I think she was also abusive as well. And so it was, you know, he... Just a toxic relationship. Oh, yeah. Around. I mean, yeah, and he headed a, con- a company called Murder, Inc. Like, it's not surprising that <laughs> he was abusive. So in 1944, they got in a fight, and he beat her and then raped her. And he was arrested oh. for 
Bookmaking. Bookmaking. Yeah. And then, so in um, Female Criminals, they said that his arrest for bookmaking was actually like her getting revenge on him for doing that and calling and saying that he was gambling. So he, they, they like made up though after that and they, they stayed together. But in the 1940s, he was commi- 40s, he was commissioned to Las Vegas and he was one of the driving forces for the Las Vegas Strip. As the crime syndicate was easily able to launder money through casinos, the mob bosses gave him a million dollars to build the extravagant Flamingo Hotel. That's so cool. I, I knew that I knew that syndicated crime pretty much built Las Vegas, but that's so cool to hear exact names. Yeah. Yeah, it's like The Godfather. Mhm. We if we ever are allowed to go to Vegas, we should go to the Flamingo. Is it oh, still I, only, there? I only I only want to go to old Vegas. I don't know. I've never been. Okay, well, let's go. I just want to go to like the old cheesy part of Vegas. I have like no interest in the other parts. I don't either. I don't want to be around a bunch of like drunk people. I mean, but, unless we're drunk. Unless we're drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be really drunk though. I mean, right now all it takes is like a glass of wine. I'll be carting you around. Okay, perfect. And an actual <laughs> cart. <laughs> but, yeah, I got really my key, I've got my Keen's wagon for the kids that has a sunshade. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? You oh, like oh, me around it's it's got like a little shelf that folds out for keep a cooler. My drink. Yeah, it's, no, it's got a full-on cooler that comes with it. Yeah, you can. We can trade off. Wagon, Keen's Wagons, I love you. You have saved my butt in so many times, and you're going to help me cart my friend Emily around Vegas. Sponsor us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, so, yeah, the rumor is that it was a nickname for her, either because she had long legs, like a flamingo, or because her face, face flushed pink when she drank. And neither of which those are, like, particularly flattering. <laughs> but, but still, that's kind of cute. I know. But I also read somewhere that, like, he, he just really likes flamingos. <laughs> so Probably dope. would. He sounds like a tacky guy. I, like, I know. You know what? I like pink plastic flamingos, too. Pink plastic, you know. Well, I can't even say that. That's a tongue twister. Pink plastic flamingos. We like that, too. <laughs> Don't ask our, me to say it five times. <laughs> that's our new tongue twister before this starts. <laughs> so, uh, he should have stuck to his lane because he was a better murderer than he was a contractor. And he was just failing miserably. His materials were being stolen and then sold back to him at a higher price. <laughs> <laughs> he kept overspending on lavish decor for the hotel. And he was like probably pocketing a lot of it. And the one million allocated to the hotel quickly turned to six million. So the mod bosses were not super happy. And those guys you obviously don't want to piss off. When it opened in nineteen forty six, it was a pretty big failure. And it had to shut down almost immediately. Why? It reopened um, just because it wasn't making a profit. Like it was just oh. like so they like shut it down and then reopened it. So it reopened in nineteen forty seven. Um and it was making a profit, but it was not fast enough and then the New York bosses were like, we have had enough. So 1947 also marked the first of many, and I think on some accounts, eight suicide attempts for Virginia when she was drunk. And I know it's, yeah, she had a lot. When she was drunk in the Flamingo, she punched a woman and Siegel took her up into his room and screamed at her for embarrassing him, which led to her overdosing on sleeping pills. They got her to the hospital, got her stomach pumped. How many women have we talked about and like, even like researched about so far and we're not even far into this mm-hmm. like podcast women overdosing on barbiturates constantly like, and I how think, were those things even legal I, they were they were like legal and like advertised constantly like yeah it was it was so bad and it was i think a really well, you know thing. what speed was advertised too as a weight loss drug so was it yeah i feel like some of the like some of the weight loss drugs now though are like 
speed too. Oh, that that would be such a good Patreon episode. Oh yeah, that would like old bogus weight loss drug. I mean that that goes into we like we like our harlots of all sizes. Yes, <laughs> we do. I have my first Patreon one that I'm working on. So ooh, good for you. Uh, yeah. So you guys should when we have Patreon set up, <laughs> we are gonna have some juicy content on there. Oh, I, I haven't even told Karamia the one I'm working on because it's so good. I'm me. so excited. I'm not going to. You're gonna guess so what? Excited. They don't even have it. They don't even have an NC seventeen rating. They have a triple X rating, <laughs> <laughs> which isn't recognized by the MPAA. <laughs> yes. So briefly, I just want to state that. Uh, I did have an issue with how this article from the Mom Museum discusses mental health. So it says she was a mental case, and I I don't like that term. I know this article, by the way, was written in 2016. So I just want to. I know I just want to talk about it because so it said today she would have been diagnosed with bipolar, sociopathic, borderline personality, or worse. So I don't like the term mental case, and I don't like the term or worse. And And do you know how many people that are like completely amazing? wonderful citizens are diagnosed with borderline personality and are diagnosed with bipolar and it's just and borderline personality is not what you think it's not it's not multiple personality i actually had a uh, psychiatrist tell me he thought i had borderline personality disorder and i was like i don't have multiple personalities but it's different so yeah Yeah. you know and it's it'll make you a bad person and it's also way more common than you think it's way it's super common and it's also yeah anxiety depression and i don't like i don't like to the term or worse and it's already traumatic enough if you are suffering from any of these conditions and especially since a diagnosis can be terrifying given the stigma i mean right now like at this point in time it's less but especially back then like in the 50s yep this is clear she was struggling obviously she made a lot of bad decisions but that doesn't mean she shouldn't be given mental health care and of course in the 40s that like didn't exist but they you know wanted to fix people with lobotomies but that was also like 2016 this article was written so i just yeah so in 1947 bugsy was drawing too much attention from the mob and he was failing their expectations so they supposedly warned virginia to get out they were like he's done you have to go to i don't know if they told her why but they were like go to chicago and so she went like she got out she went to paris and she told him she was buying wine for the flamingo and (laughs) i know i love that i know he was like okay so andy edmonds in her book came to the conclusion that virginia didn't really care about bugsy and that she was just placed in his life by the mob but you know, it's it's kind of it's hard to say because she could have been, but she could have also. I mean, in the know. end, if we're not like committed life or death to somebody, we're gonna choose our life over theirs. Yeah, you know, of course. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Bugsy was killed in 1947, and I'm gonna read you this portion of his obituary from Time Magazine. Yes, <laughs> so, another bit. I know. Let's do it. So we it's from Monday, June 30th, 1947. Okay. Quote, in 1939, Big Greeny Greenberg, a former associate of Bugsy, was found dead. Police arrested Bugsy. In jail, Bugsy lived fine, arranged for meals of steak and pheasant, and had liquor served in his cell to entertain his women visitors. And things took care of themselves. Two state's witnesses suddenly died. The case against Bugsy died with them. The war years were good to him. He cornered the 500000 a day California bookie business, set up a milk run, smuggling Mexican heroin into California. In 1946, he opened the swanky $6 million Flamingo Club in Las Vegas. He made the acquaintance of sultry, dark-haired Virginia Hill, 30. (laughs) He was famed for parties that dazzled even Hollywood. The story was that the thrice-married Virginia had a Brooklyn patron, a gang overlord, who paid her handsomely to stay out of New York. Bugsy moved his shoes and sweets over to Virginia's house. Shoes and suits. Sorry, I like can't read right now. <laughs> but lately, things have begun to go sour. 
The Flamingo lost money. From New York headquarters, the boys arrived to talk to Bugsy. A couple of hoods were cut down in the old 20s gangland style. Competition was increasing. The underworld was migrating eagerly into Southern California. One day last week, Bugsy returned to Beverly Hills from Las Vegas. He went to Virginia's house with his sidekick, Al Smiley. Virginia wasn't there. She'd gone to Paris. Bugsy settled into the sofa and glanced at the next morning's papers. Outside, someone pushed a thirty caliber cabrine through a rose trellis, drew a careful bead, put two shots into Bugsy's head, two into his body. A shot that went wild lodged in an oil painting of a nude woman holding a wine glass. That's amazing. I know. And that's the end like, of the obituary. That was oh, I was just like that that like lodged in the oil painting aren't those so good that's why i like that's so good and i just like how they include all the bad with the good and they're like yeah we're gonna admit that some of the bad stuff that he did it sucked but it was kind of (laughs) cool okay so yeah and i I think it's the fact the obituary ended with a nude woman holding a wine glass was kind of funny so that would be an oil painting of me I know. (laughs) (laughs) the murder was never solved but it was widely considered to be a mob hit it's like (laughs) It's like in um, Parks and Rec, where like he goes to work for Sweetums, and she has all those pictures, like naked pictures of her and her like ninety five year old husband. Okay, she's so freaking weird, though. <laughs> okay, totally yeah, weird. yeah, that that character is weird. Okay, go yeah. ahead. Okay, all right. So it was a mob hit. The other theory is that it was a hit put out by her brother because he was abusive, but I think it was a mob hit. So she found out in Europe when she was like on a boat party. And she allegedly tried to commit suicide three more times, two or three more times in Europe, and then a fourth time when she returned to Miami. Um, So, yeah, a lot. And in 1950, she was in Sun Valley, Idaho, and she met Australian skier Hans Hauser. Hans's friend, who was an asshole, described her as far from pretty, a bit short and dumpy. I'm like, have you seen her? (laughs) She's so pretty. And also, like, I hate that. Also, also, we probably have to acknowledge what... But what the partying from all those all years that. and yeah. the drugs well, and the this was yeah, a year probably before. Had. So that picture that you said she didn't look great that was like right before yeah this came. But she this was also in nineteen early nineteen fifty and I she, just I just also say she didn't look great because she's like super puffy. She is. She also just given birth. Too, oh okay. Recently. Yeah, but I, a lot like I don't think right like but I think I think a couple of months like maybe like at least within the year. So, but yeah, she definitely looks different than she does earlier. So his friend also claimed that she compulsively pulled out her eyelashes, which just seems like a habit. I know. Like super anxious. Oh, honey. She, I know. She eloped with Hauser at the beginning of 1950 and then their son, Peter, was born in November. So like pretty much almost like nine months after they met. And 1951, she was subpoenaed by the Kefauver hearings on crime. And I think they tried to subpoena her earlier, but she was like, I can't go because I'm pregnant. And then everyone was like, what? This mob lady is pregnant? Like, everyone was kind of like, how could she be a mother? Blah, 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 blah. This was, so these hearings were highly publicized and televised nationally. Edmund states that Virginia's, quote, name was familiar in nearly every household in America. Women hated her, men fantasized about her, and the government vowed to destroy her, end quote. 
Virginia protested her innocence and claimed she had no knowledge of any illegal happenings. She claimed that her boyfriends had all just given her gifts and that her money had come from betting on horse races. When they asked her how she could have been unaware of illegal dealings in Vegas, she claimed that she had hay fever and had to take Benadryl every time she went out to the desert. So she spent the entire time in her hotel room not being aware of the money laundering, mob hits. Oh, I love her. I, <laughs> I love know. her. It sounds like this- a lie like a five-year-old tells. I, I know. Her. I have to send you this clip. Because I watched a clip of her from the court case, and she's amazing. She there's a up and, clip? There's a clip, yeah. I'll that is amazing. It. Yes, you have to. Amazing. I, I definitely want to see that. Oh, it's my so gosh, good. I want to see that. I also watched a clip. She was, like, in – she was a extra in a movie, and there's, like, a clip of her. And she was just, like – it was, like, in the – 30s or 40s but yeah it's really good so she shows up in a five thousand dollar mink cape big hat and silk gloves and that was that picture of her in the second picture and she left in a whirlwind of cameras punched a reporter and yelled that she opened a comic <laughs> mom would jump on them <laughs> um so she was indicted in 1954 because she didn't pay her taxes and the irs claimed she owned owed over 160,000. she was actually at a house in spokane washington and they oh. auctioned her stuff out. Her house only went for 30000 And she got out of the country. She and her husband like, left, and they moved to Austria with her son. And she may or may not have been continuing to work for the mob. So Epstein admitted to sending her $100,000 like, in a 13-year time span. And she had over 60 European border crossings from that time. There's also rumors that she was depositing money in Swiss bank accounts. And they were like keeping really close eyes on her in the state. So if she was, like a Swiss bank account would be place to do it Mm -hmm. she attempted suicide again in 1965 i know and her husband saved her and he she was able to get her to a hospital on march 24th 1966 she was found dead at the age of 49 lying in the snow in austria next to a stream her death at 49 yeah she was really young her death although made to look like a suicide may or may not have been Edmonds claims that it was suspicious that she was found outside and she had met with Joe Adonis several days earlier and had been escorted back to her house by bodyguards. There are theories that she'd been trying to extort the mob because she'd run out of money. I mean, she did have a history, but it also would have been really easy for them to make it look like a suicide. And I actually think that that theory is more likely. So her husband, uh, so she, yeah. And um, what I heard in the uh, female criminals podcast that I hadn't, hadn't heard before was that She'd actually sent like three days before she said she had kept this diary of everything happening, happening. Mm-hmm. And she sent it to Epstein. It was like in case of my death. And that was like three days before she died. So oh, she knew it was coming. Yeah. So her husband died in 1974 of an apparent suicide and their son died in 1994 in a car crash in France after a career as a decorated war vet in Vietnam, which I thought was said um mm-hmm. and then all three of them are buried in austria oh i know so that's all i have on virginia hill wow she just like lived so much in such a short time and like honestly like i know i'm not supposed to like base people like what i think of them solely on their looks but like she is seriously one of the most prettiest women i've ever seen she's so gorgeous I like know. i can't i can't get over because she's also like not necessarily super conventionally pretty She's, she's just she's got like, gorgeous. you look at her and you just want to know more about her. You're like, dude, this woman's got like a quick wit. She can like raise me down. She's intelligent. She's going to get yeah. what she wants. Or, like, I don't know. There's just something about her where I'm just like, she was I like the only woman her. That, that got that high up in the mob too. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So real quick, I'm going to go mm-hmm. over my sources. 
Yes. So I did uh, mafia.wikia.org, Wikipedia, history.com article, encyclopedia.org, Time Magazine article from April 1st, 1966, and a Time Magazine article from June 30th, 1947, uh, article from the Mommy Zam, AL.com, excerpts from Bugsy's Baby, The Secret Life of Mob Queen Virginia Hill by Andy Edmonds, uh, ChicagoPublicLibrary.org, and then TheFamousPeople.com, and then also the podcast uh, Female Criminals, which is really good, too. And mm-hmm. Okay. And then, as promised, I have two obituaries from the same day Woo-hoo! as hers, and they have nothing to do with this episode at all, but I still think it's fun. Thing. Okay. Not that people dying is fun. The no, it's not fun. fun. Yes. Yeah. Died. Mary L. McCarran, 59, daughter of the late U.S. Senator Pat McCarran, who spent 32 years as Sister Mary Mercy, a holy names nun, often driven to despair as her politically influential father constantly meddled in her cloistered life, winning her trips to politically influential er, to Europe, paying for her to come to Washington's Catholic University for a Ph.D., and helping her stretch her poverty vows by sending his limousine around to pick her up at the Library of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> until oh his God. death in 1954, after which she left to order to care for her mother and ailing sister, later became a successful stockbroker, a three-book author, and college humanities teacher of cancer in Bethesda, Maryland. I know. How do you accomplish that much in one life? I know. I, I haven't done anything. I don't even want to think about what my obituary would read up until this point. Like, Emily, don't even... Emily Valentine died, had 27 cats, and they ate her body. <laughs> No, 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 no. We both know that our beloved partners are going to die before us and we're living together. Oh, yeah. We have decided this. We We decided that a long time ago. (laughs) It's okay. I don't think Matt's listening. Okay. Died. John Harlan, 31. A one-time dress designer for Dior at Balmain and an Air Force polar polar survival expert who became a noted alpinist and his first American to conquer two of the most dreaded Alps. Okay, he's 31. He's my age. He was a dress designer for Dior and Balmain and an Air Force polar survival expert. Emily, I'm Emily, only expert in he cats. Didn't, he didn't, he probably didn't drink wine and he probably didn't have friends or like, honestly, men didn't probably waste his life, right? Are you saying I wasted my life? No, on men wine. did no, men didn't waste his life. I oh, mean, think men didn't okay. waste his life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Men definitely there's some men who have I'm looking at you rhymes with Ray. <laughs> um, okay. So and uh, two of the most dreaded Alps, the Matterhorn and the Eager, via their treacherous north faces, opened a school in Switzerland specializing in Diritisma. An innovation that ignores the traditional zigging and zagging around in danger spots for a damn the obstacles straight up climb to the top. And as a result of a 3,000 foot fall during the first Diratessima attempt to the eager, successfully completed by the rest of the team three days after he became the mountain's 29th victim in Kleinsteig, Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> and also, that's called switchback in English. Oh. Switchbacks. Oh, switchbacks. Oh. So this is the first guy to do switchback switchbacks. No, he said you said he didn't do switchbacks well, and he wanted to climb back. He wanted to go straight up, right? Isn't that what you said? Um, or he ignored the straight up. No, which he ignores straight switchbacks and it goes straight up. 
So yep, it's like yep. parkour. Yeah. I think this is the sweetest version of parkour. Parkour is done in industrial cities, Emily. Hardcore parkour. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, All right. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's do our... Yeah, you go first. Okay. Um, no, I don't have one. I have to think of one. You go first. Okay. So the other day I did not have my hair washed and I was like so tired of it. I just combed it into two pigtails and I put my husband's Detroit cap, which I gave him on (laughs) and I had sunglasses on and my daughter, my six-year-old daughter looks at me and goes, mom, you look so cool. (laughs) So then I proceeded to wear that outfit for three days because I'm so happy my daughter told me I look cool. (laughs) It's like the first and last time she'll ever say that. She's never said that to me before. That's so cool. You should take it a picture. That would be a really good Instagram post. (laughs) I don't know. Okay, so mine, I guess I, last night was my birthday and I was, it was nice. I had a good day. I like went out to the river, went to the pool and we recorded some episodes and I drank some really good wine. And then I had a really like a long talk with my brother and then my aunt and uncle who I don't talk to that often, but they, they always call me on my birthday and they're like, to help most, they're like the funniest people ever. Aren't they like the super amazing culture people who live in New York? They do. They live, um, they've lived in New York for like 40 years. And my aunt was telling me about how she is staying inside for COVID. But the one thing she can't give up is her morning croissant and a cappuccino. That's, actually, that's, that's really I know. Funny. I know. And so she takes her dog because every, every time I visit them in New York and I visited them tons in New York and I even stayed with them like one summer while I did it. Like, and oh, I was taking classes at NYU and they always have a coffee shop right next to them. And that's like, they don't have a coffee machine. They live in New York. They don't need one. They just go to the coffee shop. They get a pastry and a coffee every single day for like the last like 40 years. I think she's done this. So like, that's it's just adorable. She has to, it's like a routine. She takes the dog. The dogs always come to the coffee shop and then like, they're like the regulars there. So, so she's like, I will eat a pan of chocolate for you. And it's like, Oh, can you eat an almond croissant for me? They're so good. She's like, it contains too much sugar. <laughs> okay, and before we continue or end, we must say Ruby, who worked at the at Cafe Campania, made the best. So oh my gosh! But like, do you remember when she took the pano chocolates from the day before and, and made, made them into almond? Oh, almond croissants. Anyone who doesn't know are traditionally made from day old pastry. And they've got marzipan and almonds and like, mm. and do you remember at the end of the, like, we'd work 10 hour brunches on our feet. We wouldn't eat anything. It'd be 90 degrees and the AC was always broken. And we get to the end of the day, we have an almond croissant and those sausages. Do you remember those sausages? Or- oh, pork so, and, and I, just, I just miss that baguette. I miss those palm frites. I miss oh, the I miss aioli. The chicken. The chicken. I miss aioli. We're going to have to go when I am... Um, Oh, Chef Daisley Gordon, we're going to come get takeout from you. (laughs) Well, I can't because I live far away now. Oh, that's right. I forgot. I just almost thought you were in Seattle. That just made me so sad. Oh, I'm like Daisley Gordon. I will get takeout (laughs) from you. I want rustic pate. (laughs) Well, I have been trying to get takeout from you guys since the pandemic started and no one will ship me anything to Colorado and I'm like really offended by it. <laughs> I really want the um Quinnells. Oh. I know. I'm so hungry. Uh, um, okay. okay. <laughs> well, we just thought uh, we're we're going to go eat now. I know. Right. Want to uh say that we are taking back that word harlot. One episode at a time. So be a harlot, not a hater. Bye. Bye. 
Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Our music is by Lloyd Rogers, and our cover art and our editing is by us. If you enjoyed listening, we would be tickled if you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can always email us at harlotsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We will do our best to respond with something cute, snarky, or boring. We are also on Instagram and Twitter as Harlots of History. We love you all, even the haters. Bye!